Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one. And which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Avner Halpern, CEO of EarlySense, an Israeli medtech company that monitors healthcare facility patients without ever touching the patient's body. I know that sounds strange, but it's true. Avner is a veteran high-tech executive. He has served in several senior management positions, including CEO of Emunet, VP of Marketing at Radcom, VP of Business Element at Lenslet. Avner worked as the R&D manager at LDOT and was the department head of R&D unit in the IDF, where he participated in the Topio project. Early sense technology leverages big data and advanced machine learning algorithms to generate highly accurate health information, empowering clinicians to achieve early detection of adverse events and improve patient outcomes. In plain speak, they pretty much predict issues going on with the patient by monitoring their their needs. And with that, you know, Avner, welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. I'm sure I didn't do justice to nearly as much as what Early Sense does. So why don't you fill us in a little bit more about Early Sense, and then we'll just jump into the conversation. Great. Thanks for having me, Eddie. Uh, we at Early Sense really try to make a difference in taking care of patients by providing real-time information and improving the effectiveness of clinicians, nurses, and doctors. We do that by collecting large data on patients, as you said, without touching the body. We are, you know, in the fairy tale of the princess and the pea. We are the pea, the sensor that goes right under the mattress. Nobody feels it and collects very accurate heart, breathing, motion, sleep information. And based on that, leverages big data analytics to provide early warning of of changing condition and risks. And, And with that... Uh, empowers clinicians to intervene in time or early and make a, provide for much better care. For example, there you go. Yeah. Um, patients who get pain medication have a risk of getting their breathing go down continuously, and many patients on pain medication actually get into what's called respiratory depression. And then if the nurse comes in within a few hours to check on them, uh, main, they, these patients need to be intubated and uh, moved into intensive care. If it takes the nurse a little longer to find out that out, that patient will be found dead. And that happens close to 60,000 times a year, every year in the U.S., so very significant numbers. We, instead of had that type of issue being detected over hours, we detect that practically in real time within a couple of minutes. And then instead of intubating, moving to intensive care, and so on, we actually make empower them just to change medication or give a shot in the arm and that whole risk of death intensive care intubation is resolved by a simple shot in the arm that costs seven dollars and fifty cents <laughs> that's one example of the big impact over detection i'll give you just one more quick example sepsis infections in hospitals are we the major biggest risk for patients today across all medical systems a patient who has a developing sepsis, uh, his risk of or his chance of survival goes down by 8% every hour. That means if you 
get manual data only after three, four hours of spot checking, that risk, that patient is much higher risk of death and, of course, complications. We detect that in real time. So, so again, before we get into this, so people are going to say, okay, so, you know, but aren't patients hooked up to all these monitors, right? Aren't they, you know, everything is, you know, you have wires coming out of everywhere in the hospital, especially if they're in that much need. So how are they not doing it? How are you doing it? So just, you know, just so before we get into everything else, let's just focus on that a second. Sure. So actually, uh, as surprising as it sounds, what you said now is a misconception. Uh, 80% of patients in hospitals today are not wired to anything. They're lying in bed uh, in the corridor, sometimes at the end of the corridor, and the nurse or physician come into that room once every three, four, five, or six hours, and nobody knows what happens in between. So basically, their medical care for 80% of patients in the U.S. happens based on old data. Amazing as it sounds, we, are, we do not have real time about the vast majority of patients. Why? Because it's complicated and expensive to put sensors on every patient, and it generates huge number of false alarms, what's called alarm fatigue. So we replace that complexity of putting multiple sensors on the body that is expensive and generates a lot of false alarms with an invisible sensor under the mattress. And then when you do that, you can actually monitor all the patients and not just the intensive care and the cardiology and high-risk patients, but monitor them all. And that's even before we start talking about taking those sensors into nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities, and eventually, of course, into the home, where we want to keep most of the patients, of course. Okay, so thank you for that. And and it's, you know, definitely informative. So with that, we're going to just go into some early questions, and we'll move more on to where you are now. So when did you, you know, when did you want to start, um, or better yet, when did you want to become the CEO? How did you become the CEO of Early Science? Like, what led to that point? Sure, so, you know, I... uh, Obviously, that was not the first thing I did in the high-tech industry, right? I started with, as you said, in the Army and then mm-hmm. doing other jobs of head of marketing and head of R&D and head of business development. So I, you know, after I would say more than four or five positions in different companies, I felt I was ready. Um, and I really wanted to start my own company and not just be a CEO, but CEO of my own thing. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the exciting and, and driving force for me. It took me a while to find the right idea. And today when I meet young entrepreneurs, what I often tell them is you, since the road of entrepreneurship is so tough, you have to wait until you find the right idea because you have to be really engaged and motivated by it because there'll be so many Absolutely. bumps and, down, uh, and, and challenges along the way that you really got to be engaged. And when I found an idea that really was, I got connected to because it related initially actually to health of kids at home and to asthma, where I had a daughter with asthma, that really kind of motivated me. And that's why I found, co-founded the company and wanted to lead it from the first day. And I've been doing that now for over 14 years. So, so I mean, thank you for that. And that's exactly where I'm, So a lot of ideas start from a need. So you pretty much started the need for, based on your daughter having asthma. And so what you did, you created something where it monitors when they sleep or when they're moving around all day. So I actually met uh, two of my co-founders who, who I have to they credit, they had the original idea and mm-hmm. started with one of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dr. Danny Lang and Yossi Gross uh, actually started the initial concept of putting sensors and monitoring children in sleep at home. And when I joined them and I saw the original early concept, I said, wow, this is really exciting. 
it was engaging for me again because it was related to a problem I knew from my home. And all three of us really felt this is something that is both a real commercial impact, but is also meaningful for us because of our own personal experience. I hear that. I hear that. Okay, so I'm going to just go back a bit a second now. So your first job, what did you, you know, if you learned anything, did you learn anything that stayed with you? Like, you know, that really impact you saying, wow, that's something I really, really took from my first job. And I think that's something I need to really do in everything else. So, you know, tough to define what was really my first job. But I spent six years of my life in the Army doing uh, R&D and managing uh, projects for the Intelligence Corps. And I think the, uh, the thing I got there where, you know, the mission was so important. We were so engaged. We really saw the value of what we were doing. Uh, for the security of Israel, um, that kind of the concept of no matter what, we're going to meet the schedule and deliver on time, on quality, because this is really important, and just go through walls if you have to to make it happen. I think that's probably the most important takeaway I took from my army years, and trying to take that now into also the startups that I was in, was involved in throughout the Okay, so now, now just jumping back, right? So you met your co-founders and you started off not really where you are now, mm-hmm. right? So take us through some of the early days, right? So you had the product, you said it's a great idea. It, it serves a need that I, I see and apparently other people see as well was your co-founders pretty much built it off the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Same need. So how did you, you know, how did you start, right? You met them, loved the idea, convinced them to work together. And then you walk us through the early day. Sure. So, you know, we we started with a, with a concept and a need, as you said. We really got, we're very highly motivated. Um, one of our co-founders, Dr. Lang, uh, had really built an early prototype, so we knew it was feasible. And, you know, you start by doing two things. One is um, trying to build a roadmap and showing that there is real clinical value in what you're doing. And two is raising money. And the two things kind of go hand in hand. Um and we really went through an iteration of collecting a little bit of data, then that leading to, co- to raising seed funding, using that to do a slightly larger a clinical study, using that to, build, uh, to do our first uh, VC round. And with that, really started to build uh, the go-to-marketing and the more business aspect. And that's when we hit a wall, because we realized we had a great product and a fantastic um, uh, technology, but no real business model and go-to-market possibility because there was no reimbursement for a solution like we developed. And we understood, thankfully, relatively early in that time period, that while we uh, were able to convince investors to put money on this concept, there is no real way to bring this technology to market. Um, Not realistic that people will pay for it on their own, and reimbursement would not happen for probably a decade for such solutions. So we did what I think every startup almost has to do at some point in their lifetime, and that is pivot. Uh, you know, forget everything you said, you thought about, uh, and understand that even though you're emotionally very connected to that asthma idea, you have to make a change. And we made a change. Uh, instead of going to after kids with asthma, which was very exciting, we went after elderly people in hospitals. Um, and by doing that, I think we, we saved early sense and made it into a viable company as it is today. Got it. So, you know, but 
So a couple of things, right? So one is why why didn't you see that early on, right? I mean, again, it's it's an obvious thing, right? So you know you're very blinded a lot by your first idea, right? You you want to stick to it. It's hard for you to pivot. Um, and when you realize that hospitals, elder care was really a you know a viability, what did you do to prove that to your investors? Right? We already raised funds now, mm-hmm. and investors really don't have. A long patience, right? They don't have a, an attention span that lasts a long time. So you have to really prove. And so you're collecting the data. Did you? And you collected the data off your first idea first to raise the money. But now when you say to them, okay, we don't see any real monetization coming from that. Hospitals, you know, in a sense, is a much more viable option. But with the hospitals, you also have to deal with, you know, you're dealing with uh, Medicaid and all the different reimbursements. It's a much you know, I would say political, bureaucratic battle, you know, were your investors scared? Were you, were you guys nervous? I mean, you're going, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a behemoth of a giant you're going after to try and get reimbursed. So a few, you raised a few questions and all part of things that we had to tackle. So first of all, you know, you know, we started, what we did initially, we were wrong. I mean, we, we went after a very exciting technology and we thought, you know, if we as parents get excited by it and we would buy it, that means there is a real market for that. You know, today in retrospect, I know that was uh, completely foolish. Um, you know, and especially the fact that if you think, you know, especially based in Israel, that if you ask people around you if they'll buy it, that means there is a market. That's, again, obviously wrong because we are not the target market here. And while people here in Israel, for example, would pay for such an asthma solution for their kids of their own money, in the U.S., it's if it's over one ninety nine ninety nine, and there's no reimbursement, nobody will buy it. Uh, it's even more amazing in Germany, by the way, because there, if there is no reimbursement, the, the uh, average customer will say, if there's no reimbursement, I probably don't need it. Which, think about it, is so different from anything in, in our culture here. So we made that the basic standard mistake of uh, entrepreneurs saying, you know, if we and the people around us like it, it's a real thing. And, you know, today when I meet people are in this early stage, I tell them, you know, first thing you do is you go spend time in the market and you talk to potential customers, even before you actually have a pilot and a prototype, uh, just to understand the need and the willingness to pay, which is probably critical. So that was a mistake we made. Uh, that's the bad news. The good news was that we were willing to acknowledge that and accept that early on and make the pivot and convince our investors, which, as you said, was not easy. To do that, we took a a small consulting firm in Boston. We went and did a survey of customers and we came back with proof of customers saying, this hospital product, we would pay for that. This is a value proposition, clinical, economic, and marketing. And with that, we move forward. And uh, thankfully, our board was very cooperative and said, you know what? We understand that we have to make a change. You build a good case. Let's do the change now when we have enough money in mm-hmm. the bank to do that. So that's what we did. So, so, so pretty much, you, you created a business model from that survey, mm-hmm. right? The, so, the survey le- legitimized a lot of that. Okay, so you know, you did that, and now, yeah. So, you, you have the idea, you have the plan, execution now. So, how do you go again? Was how many people were you at this time, right? We, yeah, at that time were probably fifteen people. Fifteen people. So you're fifteen people, you know, and. You know, and that's the early days still, right? So you're not even getting the traction that you need to really scale. Right. So selling got it had to be a pain, right? It had to be a, it's a 
it's a again it's not like the hospital and again I've never done that I, I but I know it is it's just it's a lot of hoops to jump through and especially did you need FDA approval did you need to get I mean once you're dealing with the realm of health there's so many different you know people that need to get approval and etc so how, how did that start right so you, you got the survey done right fantastic it's legitimized we could do it and then what happened sure so first of all after we legitimized it we had to develop it because we had to adopt the product so that took a while but along with what you said earlier obviously the development is the easy part once you have the product ready even getting the fda clearance is the easy part the tough part is selling and in order to sell especially in the clinical and the medical space you have to generate a lot of proof points so we had to spend a lot long time doing clinical studies, not just for FDA clearance, but to prove the value, to prove the value proposition, show that there is a real clinical improvement when you put the systems, show that because of the clinical improvement, you actually help the hospitals make more money. And only then you can start doing the sales. And then it becomes really challenging because who wants to buy from a small company in Israel, right? Um, So there is no simple recipe here except to, you know, go out and fight it and through connections and by bringing a few top salespeople in the U.S., getting the first customers. And then it's kind of an iterative process because you bring first customers and with that you get bigger companies interested. A bigger companies become interested and they start selling the product, you get more customers, and then you get even bigger companies involved. So it's a, an iterative process, by the way, that you cannot, in my mind, uh, jump over any steps. I mean, you have to do the first sales yourself because the big companies will not do it. And you have to get the clinical data before that to get the first sales. So there is a, uh, in the medical space, penetrating the market, the probably most important thing to understand is that it's a long process that requires significant budget and will be um, uh, step by step in order to get the, you know, the real, uh, let's say, market domination or market presence. Nothing I, here can be jumped and skipped over in my mind to be realistic. And in doing that, you have to leverage experts in the field because we obviously didn't know it ourselves. So we brought experts to our board and experts to our uh, sales and marketing team and uh, doctors, key doctors to work with us. And that takes a lot of time and patience, but eventually the reward is very big. I got it. So I, I wanted to talk about your, your bring your salespeople on because you said, so you did the first sales, right? And then you were bringing sales. So how do you find them, right? So what was your process of, and this goes to also scaling the company, was at this point in time, you, you definitely see traction happening, right? Because the clinical studies are working, you see where the, you know, down the roadmap, you're seeing it's going to work, mm-hmm. right? There's value there, and people, and now you have to build it up and build a team to really start selling. So how do you go find them? And especially as an Israeli company, in Israel, you know, again, the U.S. market is definitely, it's familiar, but it's still foreign. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you find the right people there? I, I, you know, you opened up an office there as well. What, you know, was that, was that the impetus to do it? Yeah. No, so absolutely. First of all, I think the important thing to understand is that we don't understand the market here from Israel. And we don't, we can't do it remotely. And most of us, I would include myself in that, Israelis, don't know how to sell, certainly not uh, professional sales in the U.S. So, yes, the objective was to start a, uh, a subsidiary in the U.S. and recruit top sales professionals to work for us and lead the operation from the U.S. Now, the challenge is that as an Israeli based here, 
I don't know how to recruit people. I don't know how to interview them. You know, here when I interview somebody, within 30 seconds I know of somebody that they know and I know. I know where they, <laughs> where they were in the Army. I yeah. can't do the same thing in the U.S. I have a, everybody has a fantastic resume, and I, I don't know what's real and what's not. Yeah. And beyond that, in many cases, you know, top U.S. talent will not necessarily want to work for me. You know, they want to work for U.S.-based leaders. So one of the things that really was a breakthrough for us that I recommend to any startup in that phase to do today is before recruiting the uh, U.S. sales leadership to bring strong uh, U.S.-based board members uh, to the company. And that's what we did in early sense. We recruited uh, two very strong and highly experienced level board members to join our board of directors. Uh, we were very fortunate in being able to do that, but I know of other companies are doing that today as well. And then when I needed to recruit the, the sales talent, that sales, I had somebody actually to help me and even lead me in recruiting that talent because that these people who are on our board directors who manage multi-billion dollar U.S. operations know how to interview and, uh, and choose the top sales uh, U.S. sales talent and the top U.S. sales talent like to work for them. They're, now they're not working for me and, and for small Israeli company, but they're working for very high-profile board members that are part of the early sense organization. So it was really a win all, on all aspects and uh, I think uh, helped us really uh, break through the, into the U.S. market. So what, what year was this? All, 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 you know, this process took several years. Mm-hmm. I would say that there kind of we brought, uh, we started building a real powerful U.S. operation uh, about uh, five years ago. Okay, so, so we're talking about two twenty four fourteen. Got it, and and so you know, finding these board members again, it's you know, did you know them? Were you put in touch, or did you like cold call? Did you just say, you know what, these this is my wish list. I want to reach out to them. The product speaks for itself, and let's see if they're going to bite. So no, I, I don't think you can really, at least for me, it didn't work in cold calling. Mm-hmm. Um, turned out that one of these executives was an executive in a very large company that we were working with. And when he retired from that company, he was interested in us. And so very often, top executives in relevant companies who just left, you know, and are interested in doing something, both for the interest, but also for really uh, helping small companies, are very relevant to people. And, you know, it, even in the large, uh, you know, the bigger U.S. market, you can often find somebody to connect you to these top leaders. And I would certainly, you know, suggest to do to spend a lot of time in networking, you know, with the relevant large companies, with the relevant executives at conferences, um, and and find the right timing to try to bring some of those on board. Um, that's what we did, and I definitely know now of more companies based in Israel that do that, and I think it's a very good idea. Okay, so what was you know when when you brought the sales team on board? What was the you know what was the first challenge you faced right you so you deployed which hospital hey who's your first customer with the product so so actually our first uh, a customer beta customer in the U S was a hospital in L A called uh, California Hospital Medical Center mm-hmm. um, and then we had one more in the Boston area called Metro West so we had really kind of two early customers that we worked with very closely 
and became our most important reference sites for future growth. Did you guys camp out there? Like, oh, you know, okay. I mean, oh, yeah. did you like, you know, because some people are like, you know, listen, especially depending on the product, they camp out there, they'll do whatever, because again, that's the what's needed. So you, and they, so those two, you, you, you bid it with, were there hiccups along the way? Did you guys like say, oh, wow, we're just, you know, something needs to change, which is so awful. We're just a little tweak here and there. And it was good. Oh, there were a lot of challenges and hiccups. And, you know, we started with the first product we thought was great. Um, and we put it in an alpha site in, our, in that site in Boston. And nurses hated it because the user interface was uh, sucked, really. <laughs> uh, and, and so we had to take it back and redo it and move uh, uh, to our t- new touchscreen interface and so on. So those things happen all the time. Then we, you know, went into California Hospital. We installed the system. We realized that there are many, too many false alarms. Again, had to do redo the software, come back in. So absolutely, I mean, the first customers are the ones that have to be very friendly. You have to be there, and you have to be very quick on correcting things. On camping out there, 100% critically important, both to support and solve issues in the field, but also to bring the knowledge back into the engineering because... Um, you really don't know what's needed until you have products in the field and you have to have that data flow and that uh, in quick it, uh, iterative improvements uh, based on people being there and going back and forth all the time. Yes. You know, so it's funny you were saying that, you know, the nurses didn't like the interface and it brings you back to the UX UI, right? I mean, mm-hmm. because you, you was, I'm sure you didn't think about that, right? You're just mm-hmm. thinking about the end user. Yeah. But the real, the, the other end user is all the people, the, 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 you know, the nurses and everybody else who's interacting with that patient, they need to have an ease of use to really leverage that, that data, right? That, that capability. And so it's it's funny that you say that. So, you know, and I'm sure that's happened a number of times since, of where where you're really listening to the user, to the customer, which is, the, the, you know, have you ever thought about, or do you might have you ever brought on, you know, your early adopters to create more more of a focus group in house, or to listen to them and, and help drive more of the UX UI? Yes, and you're absolutely right about what you said. Uh, you know, getting the um, Users involved as early as possible is something that is critically important. Uh, initially, we didn't do enough of that. But I have to tell you that even when you do everything the right way and you bring them in, <laughs> when you build kind of visionary breakthrough product, it's very tough for your customers to imagine when sitting in the room what it will be like to use the system. And they look at it and say, yeah, it looks good. And then after 24 hours of using it in the field, they find out many different issues. So... Really, you know, the, um, the model of, you know, getting into the market quickly with an early product, kind of the lean development process, in my mind, is really the right one because doing huge studies before that and bringing big groups and focus groups can only go so far. There is no real way to know what, how the product and how the usage will be in the field until you have, uh, you know, kind of an MVP, a, a minimum viable product in there in use. And, and then from there, do the quick uh, improvement uh, cycles. Okay. So, you know, so you, you're pretty much 2014 is coming along and you're scaling nicely, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how do you build, you, again, two companies, right? You have a company in the U.S. and a company here. So you're see, I mean, it's, uh, how are you vetting both, right? I mean, are you delegating a lot? Are you still, you know, everything must come to you, I'm sure, as a CEO. 
But how do you how did you find good people? And, and not only that, but the company culture you're trying to build, right? Was that something that you have in mind that you wanted to create some atmosphere, or just you know, it's whatever it comes, it, it you know, it is. No, I think uh, all the points you raise are key issues. None have simple answers. <laughs> um, but I'll share some thoughts. And you know, I turned out I actually did some research at MIT on how Israeli companies should work in the U.S. And there, there is a lot of questions around that because, as I said, it's two separate companies. You want them to be integrated around one set of values. But you also have to respect the fact that the U.S. culture and the Israeli culture are different. And so you can't run the U.S. entity like an Israeli company and vice versa. And people who try to do that have failed. So like anything else in life, it's a balancing act. What we did is we set up an American uh, subsidiary. We had one of our executives here from Israel move to the U.S., uh, to help build the bridge mm-hmm. and when needed, call from there to here in Hebrew and solve mm-hmm. problems. But we also recruited a very strong president of our U.S. operations and we let that very talented person run that uh, operation with a lot of autonomy because you have to manage U.S. salespeople through U.S. leadership and U.S. culture and U.S. rules. Uh, on the other hand, there are some kind of overarching company values, you know, the focus on actually doing good for patients, uh, the focus on caring for our uh, employees as well, and of being very, very honest about what we do. These are things that, of course, unite us all. Uh, and, you know, every time a patient is saved with our system, we announce it and we celebrate that as a whole organization and we share that information. We do quarterly updates for the whole company. But we also understand that the Israeli team will work in one way and the U.S. team will work in the other way and we'll get them to interact as often as possible. And I haven't found the perfect formula. We mm-hmm. keep on improving and, and learning every time from our mistakes. But it's all about knowing that it's two different organizations working very closely together around the common cause, each in slightly its own ways and with uh, its own local leadership. And... And that balance is what I think has allowed us to be successful. Okay. And so, you know, with that, I mean, do you do team building across the, like, once a year? Do you get together? You know, again, because again, as you're saying, you, you know, they're two different companies, but you still, it's the same right. umbrella. They're still sharing the same, you know, again. And do you also do sales from here? Or do you rely mainly on the sales department in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Are you going globally? Are you working in other countries as well, you know, deployment-wise? So, uh, you know, all sales to the U.S. are done from the U.S., and I think that's the right way to do it. You really can't manage U.S. sales from Israel. I don't think it's effective. Um, We do manage everything that's non-U.S., Europe and Asia here from Israel, and we work with local partners in each of these countries. We don't yet have subsidiaries in other Mm -hmm. countries. We may in the future. Um, And, yes, we invest a lot of time and effort and money in connecting the people so as management we meet quarterly either in the u.s or in uh israel um we have engineers and executives fly back and forth as much as possible even though it's expensive um and we you know we invest a lot in a high quality video conferencing and, and try to uh do as much live interaction as possible knowing by the way that the worth worse sorry okay. uh, way to uh communicate in terms of, especially about anything that's challenging and confrontational, is email. So anytime anything is an issue, you move directly to, you know, voice or even live video conversation uh, because uh, email is awful. Um, And you have to understand that. 
and as much as possible face-to-face interaction uh, to, you know, get people aligned and motivated along the same line. The second company I just recently heard about that, pretty much they can't use email for big issues, right? It just, it just like, you know... Email is just for transferring information, writing summaries and so on. But anything becomes confrontational, especially when you have on one end of the email people whose uh, English is not a la- native language. Mm-hmm. And with the cultural difference, you know, things can become very difficult very quickly just because somebody wrote a sentence that can be misread and misinterpreted mm-hmm. and sent it to 15 people in a, in a CC. So, yes, you know, rule here is, you know, whenever things become more complicated, you pick up the phone or get on a video call, and that's how you solve it. And if really that's not enough, you get on the plane. Okay. That's what you have to do. Do you do, do you do training for your sales guys? I mean, you know, I'm assuming you had to, because it's a very, it's a, it's a simple product in theory, but it got to be complex to sell. Yes, it's not a simple product, and it's certainly a complex clinical sale because you're bringing a new solution that means collecting information about patients, getting real-time data, and intervening in time. So it's um, absolutely, we invest a lot in, in uh, sales training. We bring all the salespeople in the U.S. to a national sales meeting, which we just did a few mm-hmm. weeks ago in, in, in our Boston office. Uh, and then we bring people both from Israel and from the U.S. Uh, to train them. And, to, and on the other hand, to listen to them. I mean, it has to be a two-way communication. I mean, yeah. these people really know what's going on, not yeah. us here, right? They know what's going on. And so they give us their feedback. We share with them next generation. We and we work about the future, but also train them on what's immediate. And and then over during the year, you know, you have people uh, go on joint sales calls, and you have uh, again voice, video training, and so on. It's you know, data exchange and information exchange is really uh, an endless process. It's not the one-time thing. It's not one-time training for the sales team, and also, of course, for customers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, are you, you know, we're going to hopefully wind down in a few minutes, but what, so what new markets are you going after, right? So we, we know that you're in hospitals, you're going after the elder care, so nursing homes, retirement homes. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing success with that? Are they more adverse because some aren't, you know, necessarily getting reimbursed from the government or Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicare, you know, are you working with, um, are you going to go after the rehab as well? Because your, your product really goes across a lot of different uh, verticals in a sense. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. And, you know, one of the challenges and, and opportunities is that there are so many opportunities and you have to uh, prioritize them. So there is growth, first of all, in terms of getting into more and more hospitals and large hospital networks. Then it is expanding across the continuum of care to post-acute, skilled nursing, rehab, uh, nursing home. That in the U.S. has been extremely successful for us and actually been a uh, a powerful growth driver for us to go mm-hmm. outside the hospital. Um, then, you know, longer term, the future where we have we are still building the infrastructure is to go into the homes of patients, right? Where we want people to eventually be. Uh, so that's kind of one axis of growth and expansion. The other is geographic. Um, so we're looking at the European and Asian markets. Uh, we are on the verge of getting first approvals in uh, China and Japan. We see a huge opportunity in the Asian market with real issues around aging and the European markets as well. Um, and the interesting thing is that one thing, something we learn in the U.S. market, we can then bring to Europe and Asia and vice versa. We've now seen specific success in one type of units in Europe that we're now trying to bring into the U.S. Uh, so that kind of back and forth learning between 
different geographic markets while we expand across the continuum of care has led to a lot of our uh, growth over the last couple of years. Okay. So, uh, you know, I'm going to you know go into your employees and we'll go a little bit more into your funding um, and the revenue model as well. So what do you want for your employees and how many employees do you have at the moment? So we are close to 150 people. Uh, and, you know, we are very proud of the fact that many of them have, uh, or many have been with us for a, a long period of time. High retention rate. High retention rate, very low attrition. Uh, people here, at first, I think, see value and impact and really the uh, difference that they're making in the world. And on the other hand, we're investing a lot in have people developing over time. So we are very proud of the fact that we had people join us as students and grow through the years to become uh, vice president in the company. Uh, so you promote, you promote, promote from within. People, we promote as much as possible with, from within. Uh, we also believe that while people work, work hard and should work hard, they should also have a life. <laughs> uh, we do believe in a life. And so, you know, we're proud of the fact that, you know, people who joined us at a young age, you know, get married, have kids, and grow and expand, do an additional degree and, and get educated, all of that while doing very serious work here. We are huge believers in diversity. We speak 13 native languages here. We're very close to being balanced between uh, men and women, including in management levels. And, you know, the age ages here are also very, are very from 17-year-old to 77. Literally, the whole age range is covered. Uh, and, you know, one of our best engineers is 77 years old, and we're very proud of the fact that he keeps on working and delivering uh, day over day and, and, and being a role model for the younger people in the company. Well, you don't hear that a lot, so that, yeah. that's, that's good to hear. So, and the revenue model, right? So, you know, is it based per bed? Is it based you know, per number of, you know, hours? I mean, how, how is it structured? So revenue model is very important, and we actually made some differences. And part of the kind of real breakthrough and acceleration and growth we had about 18 months ago was the fact that we moved from a capital sales model to more of a SaaS model where many of our customers, not all, but many of them, choose to pay on a per-day basis. So there is a, it's not a capital purchase. It's actually whenever there is a patient in the bed that's being monitored, they pay. And whenever there is no one in the bed, they don't pay. And the reason it's very effective is because there is a strong ROI statement that whenever there is a patient in the bed, uh, you know, the medical institution saves between tens of dollars to hundreds of dollars per day of use. And while and what they pay per day is much less than that. So uh, they're, they're profitable on our system from the first day with practically no risk. And that allows, on one hand, very fast adoption and growth, and on the other hand, for us, as, as early sense, a very attractive business model of recurring revenue growing year over year that investors like to see very much. Uh, and, and, and have you seen have you seen that year over year, right? So when you started again, 2014 was a big shift you guys had. And so, you know, have you seen 100 growth? You know, what type of growth have you seen? Especially now more. I think now, the, the, was again, the product's a bit more mature. Are you seeing more people in hospitals? Are you seeing more patients? Not even in hospitals. I say on a daily basis, because that's really what you're going by is, you know, per day, which, which I would say it makes sense, right? You know, why should someone pay for it if they're not, if they're not using it per se? Yeah, what we've seen is, is very fast growth recently. We've seen the fact that, you know, with a new business model, sales cycles have shortened. You know, hospital sales cycles tend to be long, especially for capital purchases. 
and very often are well over a year. Now that we have expanded across the continuum and moved to a more of a SaaS model, we see sales cycles of less than six months. And we've seen fast growth because, again, of that quick adoption rate. Uh, we just announced uh, last week a very important milestone for us, monitoring patient number one million. So it's a huge achievement. You know, not many companies that do a breakthrough product reach the lives of one million patients. We're extremely proud of that. Uh, and that I think that new business model is an important part of the fast growth that enables us to do How did you get to that, right? So, you know, capital purchase to SaaS, that's not an easy, you know, shift. Yeah. You know, it, it takes it takes a little bit of chutzpah in a sense, right? To, to say, okay, we're, you know, what's it's not really working well, and let's try and shift it, and then really, you know, commit to it. You're right, by the way. I mean, there, first of all, there is a risk in that, right? And and only after doing a, a couple of years in, in capital sales or a little more, and understanding that when people start using our systems, they keep using them because they see the value. We said, you know what? We can bring some of that risk onto ourselves. We'll put the systems out there, and once a customer starts using it, they will continue because of the value. So I don't know you know, if in retrospect we could have done that from, from the onset. Probably not, uh, because we didn't have enough confidence and enough data to do so. But at some point when we start seeing the picture, and again, uh, have to be also appreciative of the fact that we had the support of our board investors, because that's uh, more of a cash-hungry model, mm-hmm. that's when we... Um, that's when we could really do that, um, do that change. Um, so, you know, like many things, yeah, you can do some breakthroughs at the right time when you've already built the infrastructure. Um, and we are very happy that, you know, the results of that change. All right, so we're going to wind down a, a couple of questions. So did you have a mentor or someone that you turned to for advice when you were, you know, especially as a young CEO, you know, going back again from 2000, you know, I think it was 14 years already. Did you have someone you turned to that said, okay, I'm not sure if I should do this? You know, did you did you have someone? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the great things about the Israeli uh, ecosystem is that, you know, there's always somebody ahead of you and somebody behind you. Um, and, you know, so definitely, you know, I, I turned to several kind of more experienced CEOs and myself to get guidance. Uh, for example, Ori Adomi, the CEO of Mazor, that was just acquired for $1.6 billion, uh, was always a, a few years ahead of us and was you know, kind enough to share his wisdom and insight, and that helped me a lot. And now I, of course, uh, do the same and uh, provide support and guidance and uh, uh, advice to uh, CEOs who are a few years behind me, and hopefully it will be the next big thing. And I think that's one of the... Are very nice things in our system here. Okay. So what did you want to be when you were 15? If pilot. you remember. You wanted to be a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely wanted to be a pilot. And, and when that dream died, were you upset? <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Yeah, you know, when you hit real time in real life and you see that you don't necessarily have the physical capabilities to do that. Um, and, and so uh, then I thought about being a doctor and eventually found myself in the high tech area and I think kind of went back to the being a doctor dream through technology and you're pretty you're, you're pretty close to that field exactly. now. and really believe and we have the data to show it that we are making a lot of impact in saving many lives I mean just last year our statistics showed over 3,000 lives were saved with our system so that's really a very rewarding thing so 
again, my way to close the loop of getting of being in the medical space and helping people. Okay, and is there a habit or, or, or something that you do on a daily basis to keep you on top of your game? Um, you know, I think the one, the maybe two things is one, you know, kind of going home is a process what I did right and mainly, of course, what I did wrong that day and trying to uh, kind of work some lessons out of that and, and learn from that for the next day. I mean, I make so many mistakes every day that I try to learn from them and, and do a little better the following day. And I think that feeling of continuous improvement is crucial for success and that's what, what's been driving me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. For those who are listening, make sure to uh, subscribe to Plugged In Podcast and make sure you rate us on iTunes. Every rating helps. Thank you so much, Avner. It was great speaking with you. Thank you very much, Avner. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.